0: We'll be continuing with worship, with the reading of scripture. Today's um, scripture reading is from Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. This is the conversion of Lydia. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and following day to Neopolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, remained in the city some days. and she prevailed upon us this is the word of the lord
1: well good morning everyone i'm pastor rich um, man, if you're new here, I want to welcome you to our church. Uh, you made it safely. I'm um, getting a lot of text messages about there being closures on the 880. So, you know, when you leave this place, be safe. Um, don't don't drive into a flood, okay? Uh, please be careful. And if you are joining us from home... Um, hope you are all doing well. Um, And if you're new, I do want to encourage you to fill out a connection sheet. Um, Man, you know, what is church? It's not just the building. It's the people. It's the body of Christ. And, you know, uh, we gather here on Sundays, but we also gather and live life as the body of Christ throughout the week. And so uh, it's just one of the best ways to get plugged in. You can just tear tear it off on our program, and you can hand it to anyone on the welcome team, anyone here at church, and they'll get it to whoever needs to um, add you to the newsletter. Uh, With that being said... You know, as you uh, listened, we're in the book of Acts and we're learning about the journey of the early church. Uh, And what we're seeing here, and and as we've studied for the past several months, uh, what we're seeing, what God is saying to us, what God is saying to you is, look, I've recorded the history of the early church because I want you to see. I want you to uh, rub your nose in the greatness of what I did in the beginning. I want your heart to get filled up again with what you experienced when you first came to know me. I want you to see and testify that I am still real, that I am still trustworthy, that I am still capable. I am still a God who can do things beyond your ability. Risen in this season of our church life, as we go through the book of Acts, we we want to go back to God's original calling for our lives. You know, maybe you wake up and you're like, man, I'm tired. I don't know what the purpose of my life is. I don't know why I'm waking up. This is terrible. Well, what you need to do is you need to go back to why God has created you, right? Why God has created you to get up every morning. And what we see here and what's the vision of our church, really, it's to know Christ, to share Christ, to become a disciple, to make disciples. That's really the purpose of your life. That's the purpose of your life to know Jesus, to become his follower. And to share that message. What greater message, what greater purpose can there be than to know the creator of the universe, to know his love, to be redeemed, and to bring souls to eternity? No greater purpose. And church, I want to ask you a question. Have have we forgotten just how powerful, how grand, how audacious God is? You know? Uh, Some of us have small goals, very small goals. And God has this grand ambition to transform your heart, you see, to transform your marriage, to transform your family, to transform your understanding of time and extend it to eternity. Do we doubt that God can bring about revival and renewal in our hearts? Are we afraid to attempt anything that big again? Are we afraid to say, I I don't know if I want to share the gospel with this person or that person. I I don't know if God can work. It's a reach beyond our ability. That's why we're here because we want to remember that God has done things in the past that has been far beyond our ability. And we want to live like He's the kind of God who can still do that and will do that. Just think about your life. Just think about your life and all the things that God has carried you through and how He has brought you here now. He has saved you. He has provided for you. And he's not finished. He's not even close. You know, you know you know how old Moses was when God called him out of the wilderness to lead Israel out of Egypt? The brother was 80. <laughs> okay? He had shepherded flock for 40 years in the wilderness. And that's when God calls him out when Moses says, "I'm done." God says, "No, you're not. You're going to do one of the greatest things that mankind will ever remember." So we need to uh, renew our faith as we come to the book of Acts. It's not, it's not just the past. It's the present and it's the future. We need to renew our faith of the grandeur of God's will and his power and grace in your life. We need to continually ask him to keep showing up in our lives. To keep working, to keep moving, to continue to shape us and grow us and transform us. Sanctification is It's a glorious process. So today we're in Acts 16. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, who is writing Acts, are on a missionary missionary journey together, and they've landed in Philippi. And today we see a woman named Lydia, who is a very successful businesswoman coming to faith. And in so doing, we're going to learn three things in our passage. One, we're going to learn about who this woman Lydia is. She's an amazing woman. Ahead of her time. Then we're going to see the second thing, the beauty of the gospel. And then lastly, Lydia's response to the gospel. So those are our three points. So let's take a look at who this woman Lydia is. First, we are told that Lydia is from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira. Thyatira was a city in Turkey. Now, um, even today, but just as so back then, Turkey is the melting pot of melting pots. It is the epicenter of where East Turkey, meets West. It's in the middle where Europe is to the east of them, Asia is to the west, the Middle East is to the south, and sort of all these people groups converge in Turkey. There's the influence from from Asian countries like China and Kazakhstan. There's uh, Middle Eastern influence when they were occupied by the Syrian Empire. There's Greek influence when Alexander the Great had conquered them. There's European influence from when they were under the Roman Empire, Persian influence from when they were under the Ottoman Empire. And so the first thing we learn about Lydia is that she grew up and lived in a very culturally diverse place. That's what we learn. A place like the Bay Area, very similar to ours. Lydia was extremely knowledgeable and she was very understanding of many different cultures. She knew how to navigate a pluralistic society. That's the first thing we learn about Lydia. The second thing we learn about Lydia, uh, during her time, Thyatira was famous for its dyeing industry. And it was the center of purple cloth. You see, long before chemical dyeing, in ancient times, purple dye was extremely hard to come by. It came from the mucus of a a species of snails found in the Mediterranean Sea. And so it was rare, It was expensive, and because of that, it had become the color of royalty. If you watch any of those ancient Roman movies, you see that actually um, the purple color, the purple sash, that was, uh, not everyone wore that, right? There were senators and officials who wore a white toga and then a white sash, but it was only the chief officials who had the purple sash, and it was only the generals who would return in triumph, or the emperor himself, who wear the full purple robe with a gold sash. Theopompus, who was an ancient Greek historian, records that purple dyes fetched its weight in silver far beyond the bronze and the copper um, that other dyes uh, costed. So we see this in the Bible too, actually, when uh, Gideon defeats Midian, Judges tells us that Gideon took for himself the expensive purple garments worn by kings, right? He's like, hey, give me the expensive clothes. He's like, give me the Chanel bags. <laughs> that's, that's Gideon, right? Like, don't give me the white clothes or the, the red clothes. Give me the purple, purple, right? Purple garment. Second Chronicles, King Solomon told the king of Tyre, send me a man skilled to work in gold and in purple fabrics, right? Actually, many Bible scholars believe that Lydia was actually part of the Roman imperial court. Why? Well, in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he's writing from a prison in Rome and in the book of Philippians, Paul says this line um, that is very strange unless you understand Lydia. He says, those from Caesar's household send their greetings. It's very interesting. How does Paul know anyone from the Roman imperial court? Bible scholars believe Paul is referring to Lydia, whom he met in Philippi, who is attending to him in Rome because she's on business there. So what we see here about this this extraordinary woman, Lydia, is that she's one internationally cultured. She interacts and associates with all kinds of people. She eats all kinds of different foods. She's heard of all sorts of religious and anti-religious arguments and perspectives. Second, she's well-to-do and privileged. She owns a home in Philippi, probably another one in Turkey, probably another one in Rome. She's this cosmopolitan woman with a lucrative fashion business, and she is in the upper echelon of the inner circles with the Roman imperial court. For her to do this, for her to accomplish this, she is ahead of her time in the first century. And yet, out of all the things that this woman has accomplished, out of all the people that she has met, out of all the things Lydia has experienced, out of all the things that could demand her time... We see in our passage today that she is a worshiper of God. And every Sabbath day, she goes outside the city gate to the riverside. Very public, humble place. She gathers with others there to pray, to read scripture, sing songs. This is who Lydia is. But what what does this have to do with us, right? How is this relevant to us? Well, friends, maybe you're here and you're not quite sure how Christianity is relevant to you or relevant to your friends or relevant to this culture. Maybe you think it's outdated, too traditional, unscientific. What does Christianity have to say to a diverse, fast-paced, modern, cosmopolitan, metropolitan place like the Bay Area? If you're a Christian, maybe you are ashamed of your faith. You're not sure how to share this part of your life with your family or friends or your coworkers, your classmates. But I want to remind you, uh, C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. Whenever modern folk that know, think they know better than folk in the past, I want to remind you that Turkey was the melting pot of melting pots. It was diverse ethnically, linguistically. Culturally, religiously, it was fast paced, it was modern, it was cosmopolitan, and yet people are getting together to hear what God has to say. That should tell us something. That should give us confidence, if not at least give us curiosity about Christianity, about the gospel. This brings us to the second thing we learn in our text uh, the beauty of the gospel. Verse 13 tells us that they went outside the gate to the riverside and uh, where they supposed was a place of prayer. So what this means is that there's no church in Philippi, so they gathered outside the city by the riverside. Place of prayer is just a shorthand for a religious place of worship. And I, I just want, for, I want us to take some time here, and I want us to... Uh, understand just how amazing this is. Lydia eats the finest of foods. Uh, She lives in the most lavish places. She has servants and maids. But once a week, she leaves the comfort and extravagance of her home to go outside the city gate to meet with others. Why would she do this? Why would she do this? for those of us who are striving for success we believe that we will finally be happy if we get success so that's our purpose to be successful that's why we wake up that's why we work hard that's why we make tremendous sacrifices now success can take many shapes and forms it could be money It could also be physical appearance. It could be marriage and family. It could be social popularity, social acceptance. What other people think about you? You know, I remember when I used to work uh, at my civil engineering job, I, I didn't really care about the money. I didn't really care about the raises. I didn't really care about that. But I cared about what other people thought about me. That's what I cared about. Any of these or a combination of them can be your ultimate driver in your life. And you know how to identify what is your ultimate driver, what you deem would uh, be a successful life in your definition if you ask yourself this question. If I only had this, life would be perfect. I would have no more problems no more worries. God, I wouldn't ask you for anything else anymore. Ask, your question. ask yourself that question. It's a scary question. It is a very scary question because it undresses you. You can fool everyone else, but when you ask that question, you can't fool yourself. Right? It's the timeless, uh, exhausting, and elusive, elusive pursuit for contentment. And everyone in this world is trying to sell us that. The book of Ecclesiastes calls it chasing after wind. Chasing after wind. Have you ever tried chasing after wind? Can't catch it. Right? Grab the wind. What do you have? Nothing. That's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. But here's Lydia. She has accomplished her dreams. She's successful. She's got financial freedom. She's got a house, even two or three. She's admired. She's in with the elite and upper class. Everyone wants to work with her. Everyone wants to be her friend. Everyone wants to be her. But what does it say about Lydia in our passage that she would go outside the city gate to the riverside every sunday none of that is enough lydia is still searching isn't she she is still deeply discontent she is unfulfilled lydia's accomplishments though they are many they have not satisfied her soul's deep longing for joy her deep longing for fulfillment This only means one thing. There's a deep emptiness in living for yourself. There really is. Though that is the message that we are bombarded with, the Bible tells us a different message that we were not made to live for ourselves that's one of the problems I think when, uh, when uh, people get married, they go into this marriage and both of them go into this marriage thinking, I'm marrying this person because this person makes me happy. Right? I'm not going to this marriage because I'm going to make the other person happy. You see? So even when you go into marriage, sometimes you, you unknowingly, you say the vows, but deep in your heart, it's, I'm living for myself. You make me happy. The moment you don't, the lash is going to come. And that's just not how we were made to live. If you read the scriptures, that's not how marriage is supposed to be. That's not how friendship is supposed to be. It's very consumerist. But Lydia has found that there is nothing there. There is nothing there. Emotionally, philosophically, spiritually. I can only imagine that um, it's kind of like a job that that uh, you don't want to be at. That doesn't match maybe your gifting, your desire, your potential. And so you become discontent because you know that you could be doing something different, something more. It's kind of like that on a more cosmic level. When when you are living for yourself, it's like living a life that just doesn't match what you were purposed for. Your potential. And so... When you live for yourself, there is this discontentment that comes because there's so much more that you could be doing as an individual who's been created in the image of God, right? And that's what Lydia finally understood. She is trying to leave the emptiness of leaving, living for herself and now she is meeting up with this small group, her community group, <laughs> searching for answers, Verse 14 describes her as a worshiper of God, which is just a phrase that describes a non-Jew who followed the God of the Bible. And so Lydia is searching for answers and she has recognized that the God of the Bible has some good teachings that resonate with her. So she's recognizing there's something here. I don't fully understand it because we know that later she becomes baptized. So she's kind of starting her journey in the beginning of our passage. There's something here. But there's a problem. There's a problem. Now, let me explain this problem by turning to Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 34. I have this passage uh, behind us on the screen. This is what happens in Mark chapter 12. A scribe comes up to Jesus and he asks Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Right? It's kind of like an Old Testament form of the question. God, what's, what's the most important thing I should be living for, right? What's the most important commandment, you know? What should I be doing? And Jesus says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. That, that, that's a great answer. Love God and love your neighbor. No greater purpose in life, Right? I think we could all affirm that that is a wonderful, um, very high command to follow. Love, love, not hate, love. The scribe says, you're right. You have truly said that God is one, there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. And what does Jesus say? He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I love this answer. You are not far from the kingdom of God. If, I'd be, if I was a scribe, like, wait, wait, I'm not in? <laughs> right? be like, what do you mean I'm not far? Like how far am I? And Jesus says, nope, that doesn't get you in. In other words, knowing what you should do doesn't get you into the kingdom. It gets you close. That's what Jesus says. Ah, you're a little bit closer than the other guy that's stealing and killing and lying, but you're still not in. Why is this person not in? Well, here's the problem. Right? Lydia has left the life of living for herself and she's searching now for a better purpose, to better herself. And when she came to the God of the Bible, she saw that there is meaning here. Love, love. It's profound. Profound. But at the same time, Lydia must have felt the difficulty of this task. Right? The impossibility of loving God, of of loving uh, your family like you should love them. Of not responding uh, with anger and bitterness to those who offend you, that want to tear you down, but showing them grace and forgiveness. Lydia must have felt the impossibility of that task. (sighs) Think about it. Is there anyone in this room that we could say, that person, they're in the kingdom? God deserves to, God deserve. Uh, they deserve for God to give them heaven. They've earned it. That parent, that spouse, that child. No, no, no. My child in there? No, no. If not, not, not in the kingdom. Far, close, but not, not in, right? Don't matter if you're a pastor's kid, you're a pastor, pastor's wife. None of us could ever love God faithfully enough. None of us could ever love each other faithfully enough, Right? None of us could love our family faithfully enough. There must be something else that can keep all of that together. So church, when, when we're looking at this passage, you know, it's not about just about Lydia. It's not just about the scribe. This passage is, is also about us. Because there are a lot of us who go back and forth between living for ourselves And trying to live for others. On the one hand, you know I should love, I should help, I should give, I should serve, I should forgive. On the other hand, I can't. I'm so angry. I'm trying, but I'm I can't. So we go back to living for ourselves. And what we're seeing here is that neither of these approaches work. Both fall on the pendulum of reactivity. Now verse 13 continues to say that uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Luke doesn't record what Paul specifically said to Lydia. Luke assumes we're able to figure it out from other passages in Acts where Paul does speak and where he does quote Paul and we know from other places in Acts Paul essentially says God has created us to live for something greater, something more significant than just for ourselves. But the sin in us, the rebellion in us, the selfishness in us, the foolishness in us fights against this. So... We teeter totter between living for ourselves and trying our best to live for God and to do what's right. Uh, on a practical scale, on an emotional scale, we find ourselves living in between self indulgence and guilt, right? It's like we, we eat a good dinner and then in the morning we're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> self indulgence, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Oh, that looks delicious. <laughs> it's like, that's just the microcosm, honestly, of morality in life. In church, maybe you feel this tension between Sundays and the rest of the week. Here, you're like, man, I get it. I want to live for God in the week. And then you're like, man, I come to church, I feel guilty. So Paul comes along and he says to Lydia and he tells us, he says, on the, on the one hand, you need God. You do. And you're searching. You're searching. Everything that you are wanting is just a symptom that there is a deep longing in your, in your heart. And it, it's this longing for perfection, for wholeness, for the Garden of Eden, a sinless world, a world that is no longer broken. That's what you're longing for. Right? Right? Every time we get something, we realize that it's broken. It's not fulfilling. So Paul says, "I know you're searching," but he also says, "You need something more powerful than your own willpower." In the sense, the scribe and Lydia, all of us, we're kind of stuck, aren't we? Kind of stuck. But church, only only the gospel, only the gospel unsticks you. Because on one hand, Jesus frees you from living for yourself, right? He can give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit enters into your heart, you have the ability now to, to live for God, to love God, and to love other folk. That's the only way. God can free you. He can open our eyes. Can give you the supernatural joy and love of the Holy Spirit that can overflow into your life. But on the other hand, we can't do that perfectly. And so the gospel also says that Jesus lifts the burden of your guilt. By dying on the cross for your sins and your failures and your weaknesses, that's how you get over your guilty conscience. That's how you get over the sins of others. When you look at Jesus and realize that he has died for your sins. And when you understand this, that there is someone out there who will love you unconditionally despite your failures, who has paid a tremendous cost for it out of love by giving up his own life to secure your soul for all eternity, it's going to fill your heart with new life and new love and new joy over and over again every day. And this is what happened to Lydia, you see. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul had said. Now this word pay attention, uh, the Greek word that's used here is prosecco. Prosecco. I think that's like an alcoholic drink. But anyways, right, it's a prosecco. What is, I'm going to tell you what this drink means. The word uh, pros means uh, to face toward. Echo means to hold. So the word prosecco means to behold, to be attracted to. So what Luke is telling us, and Luke rarely gets poetic. He's a uh, he's a doctor. It's not his style of writing. He's he's more historical and evidential based. That's more like John. But in but Luke gets poetic here. What is he saying? He's saying this this fashion designer, the eye for beauty, the one who is usually the center of attention, the one who everyone else is prosecoing. Now she is prosecoing God. She is beholding God. In other words, God has captured captured her heart. He has attracted her heart. See, Church Lydia's business was beauty. She sold beautiful clothes uh, to beautiful people. But she had never seen a beauty like Jesus. And when she heard the gospel from Paul, she said, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And she became a Christian. And she gave her life to Christ. This brings us to the last thing we see here. What, what is her response? The first response we see in verse 15 is that Lydia was baptized. Um, last week, uh, on Sunday, we covered... Um, circumcision. It was this very uh, painful but also active act of performance. Circumcision represented Israel's performative act of loyalty to God. And the foreskin that was separated represented how Israel was going to be separated from sin. But as we have learned last week, Israel was unable to do this. Uh, They would constantly fail and rebel against God. So God, the Father, sends His Son. And and instead of uh, instituting circumcision, God institutes baptism. Which doesn't represent what we have to do, what we have to perform and do for God. What is baptism? It's a a very passive act. Right? You just just sit there. painless. What is it symbolizing? It's symbolizing that it's painless and it's passive because Jesus does all the activity and he pays all the painful price. And just as the water is poured over you, Jesus is saying you can't do a single thing. Just sit there and believe. I'm going to wash your sins away. Water represents life. Without water, nothing on the earth will survive, but at the same time, water is a very dangerous force. It also represents death. CNN, um, uh, several years back, they did a report of the most dangerous job in the world on the amount of deaths the profession had per year, and uh, number one at the top was being a fisherman. The ocean can bring death. And this is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress. Why would Jesus say his baptism is distressful? Well, it's because our baptism brings life, but Jesus' baptism brings him death. So first, Lydia gets baptized. The second response we see here from Lydia is her desire for fellowship. In verse 15, it says that Lydia urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Uh, The ESV translation uses prevail. The NIV uses persuade. And so the meaning is that Lydia persuaded Paul and Timothy and Luke and Silas to fellowship with her. This is pretty cool. Right, Lydia becomes a Christian. She baptized, she gets baptized, her whole family gets baptized. Paul is is going to move on to the next city, to the next mission and Lydia says, "Hey, why don't you come over? I want to learn more about the Bible. I want to ask you questions." And Paul's thinking, "I don't have time for this." <laughs> so she urges Paul, she come on, Paul, come on just stay, just stay, please stay. And she makes her case and she wins. You see, church, what what we see here is that the gospel had not just affected Lydia personally, right? It's not she, she just said, oh, that was interesting. Yeah, I believe. And she walks off and she goes her own way and she lives her own life. No, what happens here is that it affects her not just intellectually and personally, it affects her socially, relationally. She realized that she's loved by Jesus and now she's found this greater purpose. What is this? She doesn't just go back to work. What does she do? What has become a greater purpose than her being a CEO of a lucrative fashion business? Her greater purpose is now to, to spend time with people. To love them. To take care of them. To worship with them. To serve them. And in the book of Acts, Lydia's home ends up becoming a commonplace of ministry. Lydia's home becomes like this hub where Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke come and stay, leave, and and go to other places. Lydia went from living for herself to living for God. She went from being served by servants and maids to now serving unemployed folk, sharing the gospel. And, friends, this is what the gospel does. Right? It doesn't just transform, you know, your religious status like on a dating app. <laughs> you know, that's, not, that's not just what it does. It transforms everything about you. It transforms our home. It transforms our time, our energy, our purpose. And, and, and you don't, you no longer, you know, whatever your purpose is, whatever your purpose is, you have now a greater purpose. And you want to go back to that greater purpose always. Because that's what you're controlled by. You're controlled by the love of God, the life of God among his people, the mission of God. Let me just end with this. Uh, in Mark chapter 15, when Jesus was being led to the cross, the Gospel of Mark says, They clothed him in what? a purple robe. But they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they were making fun of Jesus, of the claim that he was a king. But they didn't realize exactly what they were doing. Jesus was a king. And in that moment in which he was the most uh, humblest, Ugliest, least attractive, without beauty. Well, here's the irony. There's nothing more beautiful than someone who gives up their beauty for you. There's nothing more glorious than a king who would give up his glory for you. There's nothing more loving than a friend who would give up their life for you and Lydia saw this she had put purple on kings and queens and powerful and elite people but when she heard the gospel she realized that purple had never looked more beautiful than on Jesus she was part of the imperial court but Jesus was her king and he had radically transformed her life. And friends, church, I pray that Jesus would radically transform ours too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And when we come to a message like this, it's hard. Because so much of what we hear, so much of what we see, so much of what we are taught, even from those closest to us, it's not about living for others, is it? It's about living for yourself. And it's so hard because, on one hand, we find ourselves in tremendous discontentment when we are living for ourselves. On the other hand, we don't know how to not live for ourselves. And I confess, that I struggle with this. And it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how much you know, only the gospel, which is what Jesus has done for us, by the power of the Holy Spirit taking that message and planting it deep in our hearts, can we start to understand the beauty and the joy the lasting life and eternality and the significance and reward and gladness of living for you and living for others. It's so easy to think why, why would I do that? It sounds exhausting. Why would I do that? That, that, that would make me look weak. That, that would make me look foolish. Why would I forgive? Well well Paul says that the cross is, is foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others, but what is it? It is the wisdom and the power of God. Arguments may not win people into the kingdom, but grace and forgiveness, prayer and faith will. The law cannot bring healing and love within families and friends, but the gospel. King Jesus can. and So I pray for every single person here that you would apply this beautiful message of the gospel to their heart. And that you would do a transformative work greater than any sermon that I can preach, but that you would preach to their heart. And that you would accomplish your will. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.